Well, good morning. It's good to be with you and sing with you. It's good to get perspective. Uh, I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I get frustrated by very first world problems. So the two closest bridges to my house to get over here were closed today. So I had to drive a mile out of my way to one of the other four that were open. And then I'm here singing and wondering, why was that even frustrating? It makes no sense. But I am glad to be with you this morning. Um, We've been going through a series in the book of Colossians entitled Christ Our Center, and we're going to continue that this morning by looking at Christ Our Captor. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Jesus, as we just sang, it's not what our hands can do. It is not even our ability to love you or our ability to feel sorrow over our sin that makes us right with you. It is you. It is your love that will not let us go. I ask this morning that as we consider the way that you have reached out to capture our hearts, that we would be drawn back into you, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that we would hear your call of love, and that we would be enraptured by you and leave this place as people that have been overflown with joy. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this morning, as we look at the idea that Christ is our captor, we're going to continue this argument that Paul has been making, and he's been making these really grand counterclaims to the Roman Empire as he's been offering this critique of the Colossians' surrounding culture and showing them how Christ is the true center of their lives, truly better than anything else that they've been told. And as we look at this passage, we're going to be asking ourselves how Christ as our center displaces the the uh, typical cultural narratives that we tend to hold on to in our own world. And in doing so, I'd like us to look at three things in this passage, and then I'll read our passage for us. We're going to look this morning at unity in Christ or tribalism in culture, treasure in Christ or monopoly money, rootedness in Christ or hollowness. Let me read this passage. It's the New Testament reading from Colossians 2, 1 to 8. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So first I want us to look at the unity in Christ or the tribalism in culture. Paul is telling us in this section of his letter that he has a very direct purpose for writing to the Colossians, and his purpose is that their hearts might be encouraged and united in love. 
And so here's Paul, a Jewish religious expert who's also a Roman citizen. He's very familiar with Greek and Roman culture, and yet he's also very entrenched in Judaism. He, he, he's very much a Jew, and he's writing to this group of Gentiles who are very, very different from him. He's writing to the city of Colossae, which wasn't huge by any means, but was still influential. It, it wasn't unlike Portland in many ways. For, for a city of its size, it had a very distinct identity, and it identified itself in distinction from the other groups of people around them. It was a city made up of people that loved to talk about what made them distinct, what sort of philosophies they were going to adhere to, what their lives would be built upon. And Paul is reminding these Colossian Christians that were no doubt a combination of Jews and Gentiles, that they are connected to the church of Christ in a way that transcends cultural and geographic boundaries. Paul mentions almost in passing to our eyes that he's writing to the Colossians and to the church at Laodicea and to all the other churches that, or he's rather, he's contending for all these churches that he had not yet met. And what he's trying to, to drive home to them is that there are other churches, other communities of Christ that you're connected to. And then he even tells the Colossians that he is absent physically and yet he is present with them in the Spirit. And while we may not be able to really understand what that mystery actually means, what we need to see is that Paul is setting up the Colossians to understand that their connectedness is to the rest of Christ's people. At a fundamental level, they are connected to the church of Jesus. And this is a connectedness that goes beyond other forms of cultural unity. When you think about it, we divide into tribes over just about everything. Mac versus PC independent versus chain stores, artisan coffee versus whatever everyone else is drinking. <laughs> we form tribes based on the kind of music we listen to, whether or not we drink alcohol. I haven't personally experienced this, but I'm told uh, for pregnancy and child rearing, there may be some differences of opinion that people hold somewhat strongly. True? Not true? We're Republican, we're Democrat, we're non-political. We have a raw food diet, a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet, or an all-bacon diet. I was reminded of how easy it is to form tribes uh, earlier this week. Uh, I was in a coffee shop. Okay. I was in a coffee shop. <laughs> so here I am as a Portlander. I live in southeast Portland. And in my neighborhood, this is, this is like the Portlandia neighborhood, right? I mean, you could throw a rock and you could hit... You know, 12 independent coffee shops, 15 micro pubs, 89 bike stores, five farmers markets, and a million dog parks, all with just the one stone. You just, it would just go through right all of them. And so here I am in this cafe feeling, you know, very Portland, very cliche, and I look at the Willamette Week, and the, the cover article is The Other Portland. And I begin to read about this neighborhood in East County just called The Numbers, and it is so completely different than the Portland that I inhabit, it's, it's almost like we're in two completely different cities. And if you were to, if you were to have, you know, have one of your friends watch Portlandia or bring a foreign exchange student or something into my neighborhood and just stay there, then you would have a very distinct idea of what Portland is. And yet, just several blocks away, there's another group of people living completely different lives in, in the same exact city, and yet we divide into tribes and we surround ourselves by people that think and act and look a lot like us. But we have to be careful not to assume that this sort of tribalism only takes place outside the church. 
Christianity Today estimates that there are 38,000 Christian denominations in the world. 38,000. So you have to start answering some questions. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Well, are you mainline or evangelical? But are you evangelical or are you reformed? And then, then are you reformed or are you truly reformed? I mean, these are... <laughs> These are the sorts of questions. But what kind of music does your church have? And do they have parking lot attendance or is parking on your own? And we start to divide up and we all get out our carving knives and start slicing. And before you know it, what happens? We're surrounded by people that think and act and look almost exactly like we do. Now, a word of of clarification and caution here. I am not about to start advocating for some sort of doctrinal minimalism. Okay, in town is a confessional church, which, among other things, means that we have a very deep, um, abiding sense of our history. We, we want to stay connected to our Christian forebears that have gone on before us and have articulated the faith and Scripture in a, in a good way. And we never want to jettison that. So I'm not saying that we should throw all these other things out the window and just see what we can agree on. It's very important to, to think through your own theology, your own worldview, and how Scripture fits within that. What I am saying is that if you want to build a tribe that looks exactly like you, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is you're in the tribe. The bad news is you're alone. This is a one-man wolf pack, because when you start to realize that if you have to agree with everyone in your tribe on everything— Not only are you not going to find a city to live in, you're not going to find a church to go to, you're probably not even going to find someone you can stay married to. Because it's very difficult to find someone else in the world that thinks about everything the same way you do. And what Paul is trying to get at is that the unity that is found in Christ is something that outpaces tribalism completely. This unity is a deep, abiding unity that pervades everything. And we have to note that it's not a unity of values. I could say that I I believe that Mac products are better than PC products, and that's a value, right? I could say that, and, and we could divide up into camps over that. But the unity that Paul is talking about in Christ is so much deeper than that. It makes that kind of idea laughable. This, is a, this unity is a result of the supernatural, mysterious union that Christians have with Christ. Union with Christ is one of the preeminent doctrines of the New Testament, and it was something that the early church fathers just talked and thought and wrote about almost constantly. And they had a term for it. They called it theosis. And it's this mysterious idea that when the Holy Spirit actually comes upon people and regenerates them and gives them life, gives them eyes to see their sin and to see Jesus as their Savior, and they turn from their sin by the grace of God and embrace Jesus, that we are actually being caught up into the divine life. The life that we have been given by the Spirit is the life of Christ himself. And that's that quote from St. Paul that I put in your bulletin. We're going to get to that in a couple more weeks in this series because it's from this book. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. In one verse later, Paul actually says, Christ is your life. So if you're a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then union with Christ is like union to your own life. It's that close. Do you see the difference between saying that we're united to each other because we believe the same things and saying we're united to each other because we all have union with Christ? That's what this unity is. It's a unity with Christ, and therefore it's a unity with one another. If you are a part of Christ's church, This unity is something that runs far, far deeper than how we feel about each other. 
It runs far deeper than how well we even agree with each other. We are united in a fundamental way because we are united to Christ, and acting any differently is nothing less than insanity. But Paul doesn't just stop with this purpose statement regarding unity. He continues to remind the Colossians that in Christ, this mystery of God, they have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So imagine for a moment that I grew up in a gaming cult where Milton Bradley was worshipped and all we did was play board games all day and we didn't go to school or anything like that. And I was, I was this is not true, okay? Just imagine with me. I was, let's say I was brought up to think that Monopoly money was worth legal tender, as much or more than any legal tender. And so maybe you run into me in Goodwill because I finally figured out the greatest scam ever. I can go to Goodwill and for like three bucks... I can get a Monopoly game, and there's, you know, there's over $15,000 in Monopoly money in each game? So you maybe run into me there, and I'm just giddy, right? I'm, I'm overblown with joy, and I'm, I'm getting all these Monopoly boxes, and I'm telling you how I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to buy a house, and it's going to be great. Now, as my friend, or just a decent human being, wouldn't you ask me a few questions? Wouldn't you try to convince me that Monopoly money is actually indeed worthless, as Paul is, is hearing these reports and seeing what's going on in the Roman Empire and seeing what's going on in Colossae, he's, he's understanding that the Colossian church has been and is about to continue butting up against competing philosophies for what life is all about. They're hearing other explanations about what the good life is and what they should be giving their lives to. They're hearing all sorts of philosophies and other religious practices, and he writes to remind them that Jesus is the true treasure. Everything else is just monopoly money. Scholars have been discussing for decades about what exactly were these philosophies and competing claims in Colossae, and, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in the next few weeks. But for now, I think what we really need to grasp in this section is that Paul is adamant that whatever they're hearing on the outside, Jesus is the center of everything. He is the center of everything. He is the true treasure. Now, it's possible that Paul is battling against some syncretistic Jewish teachers who were not denying anything about Jesus, but they were trying to get the Colossians and other Christians to start adding other worship practices to their worship of Jesus. And it was turning into a distraction from who Jesus is and his sufficiency for us. And so Paul is, a, is an amazing writer, and so he uses these words to almost battle against these detractors that are out there. And so when he says that Jesus is the riches of all wisdom and knowledge, that's a veiled allusion to the Jewish scriptures. He's saying that in, in the Jewish scripture, in, in the wisdom literature and in the knowledge literature, the law, the Torah, Jesus is to be found. He's saying the exact same thing that Jesus said to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. All scripture points to Jesus. And Paul has made clear in his other sermons that it's not just Jewish scripture and Christian scripture that points to Jesus. It's all truth. When he goes before Greek people and he, he says to them, you have hit on some true things over here. Let me show you how that points to Jesus, how he is the true riches of this knowledge and this wisdom. The mystery of Jesus makes the mystery religions of the Colossian culture seem like child's play. The riches found in Jesus make every other cultural claim seem like monopoly money. With every stone of true wisdom and true knowledge that is overturned, Jesus is to be found. You see, when Jesus is truly at the center of our lives, we're no longer finding our identity in whatever cultural narratives we've been told. 
Instead, our union with him becomes the primary aspect of our lives. And as that happens, we're going to begin to see that the treasures of our culture are cheap imitations of the treasure that is offered to us in Jesus. Brian mentioned a few weeks ago that our culture is constantly bombarding us with messages. It's constantly telling us what life is all about and what we should do about it. And typically, that it, we should buy something or change something about ourselves. Our culture is always giving us messages. Maybe you've heard some of these ideas. Money equals security. More sex with more people equals more fun. Having washboard abs will make all the ladies want you. And that one, by the way, is true. I don't know. Uh, Driving a hybrid car makes you a better person. But now you can say driving an electric car makes you better than a hybrid car driver. Or if you ride a bike, you can say you're even better than an electric car driver. Buying new things is the key to happiness. And you are the captain of your own fate. Have you heard any of these messages? Our culture is whispering stories to us constantly about sex and power and wealth. And they have a very distinct idea of what is the good life. And for the most part, these cultural narratives are reinforcing what is already going on in our rebellious hearts. We all already think that life is to be lived out in selfish autonomy, and our culture just corroborates that story. And if we're not careful, Paul is telling us, we are going to become captive to these cultural narratives. And he sets up a really interesting wordplay here. He's just said that Jesus is the treasure, the riches of all true wisdom and knowledge. And then he tells the Colossians, don't be carried off as spoil. Don't be someone else's treasure. Be the treasure of Christ. Be held captive to him. Do not give in to these hollow philosophies, these counterfeit kingdoms. And this is something that we must understand. We are all held captive to something. All of us. Even the most individualistic, Marlboro Man cowboy is held captive to something, even if it's just to himself. The call of the gospel is a call of freedom through a different kind of captivity, a new kind of captivity. It's captivity to a strange king, the likes of which has never been seen before in the world. And Paul here uses several metaphors in just one short sentence to help us understand this captivity that we have been called to in Christ. It's here that we get to the core of his letter. This is the hinge of everything that he's already said and everything that he's going to say when he says this, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith just as you were taught, overflowing with thanksgiving. Building your life on the hollowness of cultural narratives is like building a house without a foundation. It's like setting up some grape leaves and pretending that you've just planted a grape vine or putting a piece of timber in the ground and acting like it's a tree. But when Jesus captures your imagination, he becomes your firm foundation. He becomes the true vine from which you get all of life. He is your connection to life because he is life himself. And when you place your faith in him, that's just the beginning of the same movement that you'll have for the rest of your life. That movement of humble faith just continues. The Christian life is not this strange, distinct thing from the original moment of faith. What Paul is telling the Colossians and what he's telling us is that in the very same way that we came to faith, that's how we are to continue living out our Christian lives. 
Now, if you've spent much time in the church, then odds are the phrase that he uses here has become so familiar to us that it's kind of lost some of its power, some of its meaning. So when Paul says that we are to continue in Christ, just as we received Christ Jesus as Lord, he's making a very, very charged statement. On the one hand, Christ is received in a posture of humbleness and helplessness on the part of the believer. When we see our sin and how completely broken and rebellious and dead we truly are, when that's revealed to us, then we come to this one who is our Savior in complete humbleness, in complete helplessness, and we ask him to save us because he's our only hope. But beyond that, beyond just our posture in receiving this faith, in receiving this grace, the message that Epaphras brought to the Colossians was electrifying. The gospel message that Paul and Epaphras and the other apostles were spreading throughout the Roman Empire was not like a spiritual buffet. The message was not, hey, you know what, you guys already have some really good stuff going here in your, in your religious practices or in the way that you view life. Have you thought about just adding Jesus to your life? He has some really great thoughts on loving people and being kind. I think you guys would really enjoy it. No, the message was that there was a man named Jesus, a human being, a poor carpenter who became an itinerant minister. And this man felt the unflinching power of Rome, pounded into his hands and pounded into his feet. Jesus was a loser's loser. He died alone. He died penniless and homeless, and all of his friends deserted him, and all he had was derelict cries to a God that he called Father. And yet, that's not the whole of the message. This Jesus, this human being, was also God. He was the one of promise. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the one that has been promised from of old. He's the anointed one. He is a serpent-stomping curse reverser. He's the one that Israel has been pining for and hoping for and waiting for. But he's not just Jesus the man, and he's not just Jesus the promised Messiah. He is Jesus, the Lord of everything. Paul's already told us that he is the inheritor of all creation. He's the creator of everything that exists. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The fullness of God dwells within him, and he is supreme above all things, all powers, even the power of Rome, even the power of death. The message that Paul and Epaphras were suffering to proclaim was that this poor carpenter was the fulfillment of everything that Israel had been waiting for and that he was the true Lord and King of the entire universe. Not just the Lord over spiritual matters. The message isn't just, let Jesus be the King of your heart, though it is definitely that. That is a huge part of the gospel message, but it doesn't stop there. The message is also that Jesus is King over all things, That's what Paul has been saying throughout this whole letter. He is the king over everything, the Lord over all creation. There is nothing outside of his rule, nothing outside of his power, nothing outside of his kingship. So if you haven't yet trusted in who Jesus is, if you're still here asking questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ, we're glad that you're here. And we're very aware that there are a lot of misconceptions about what the gospel is and what Jesus actually said and who he really was. It's more than a spiritual experience. It is definitely that, and it is so much more than that. The call of the gospel is a call to let the Savior King have his rightful place 
in your life. And then to, in that same posture, relying on that king, allow him to bring his kingdom, his kingship, his rule as Lord over all things to bear on all areas of your life. It's all encompassing. It changes everything. If you have already placed your faith in this king, then you have been captured by him. You have been captured by a king that has defeated the powers of this world. He has defeated the power of death. But do you see that he defeated these powers not by exhibiting a similar power but of greater strength? He defeated the powers of this world through humility and death. This is the most backwards, upside-down story that has ever been told. But if you were a part of the people of Jesus, if you have been connected to him by your faith, then you're a part of that story. You're a part of a very backwards, upside-down story. You have been united to a powerful king, but a king who chose not to enter his world in splendor and demand allegiance from everyone, rather a king who entered into this world as a servant, the suffering servant of all. And now, now your life is rooted in him. It's rooted in a king who embraced death in order to embrace you, and you are being built up in him. You are being built up into the one who is the true Lord of the entire universe, the one who created all things and who will one day recreate all things. And his rule is going to extend over this world as the waters cover the sea. Do you see the majesty in what Paul is saying? The world's story, the entire universe's story, started in a garden. And now, if you are in Christ, you are a garden planted in him. The world's story ends with a garden-like city coming down that God has built. And if you are in Christ, then you have been built up into this God, unified with all of his people. Don't submit to the tribalism of your culture. Don't settle for counterfeit kingdoms. Rather, be captured and captivated by Jesus alone, trusting him whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. And when you trust him, you will have life because you have him. And you have him because he has you. He is Christ, our captor. Let's pray. Jesus, it's a magnificent thing that you are the Lord, the Lord of all things. You are the true king of this world. You own it because you created it. And yet you entered into our world with humbleness, making peace by the blood of your cross. I ask that as we leave this place, as we come to your table, as we sing more praises to you, that we would be captivated by you. That we would understand that though your rule extends far beyond our lives, it does not omit our lives. You want every piece of us. Would you begin to rule in us more and more throughout this next week and the rest of our days? We pray this in your name. Amen.